joined by Lord Conrad Black, author of one of the ten essays on populism that comprise the New Criterion's new collection, Vox Populi, The Perils and Promises of Populism. As you no doubt know, Lord Black is a Canadian-born British peer, former publisher of such publications as the London Daily Telegraph, The Spectator, The Chicago Sun-Times, and The Jerusalem Post, and founder of Canada's National Post. He's a columnist who can be read regularly at several publications, including National Review Online, The New Criterion, and The National Post. Lord Black's essay, In Vox Populi, is titled Avenue to Renovation. Thank you for joining us today, Lord Black. Thanks for having me. Populism is a term that's thrown around often pejoratively in American politics and even world politics. How do you define it? I guess you're absolutely right that it is bandied about rather loosely. Um, I would say that it's um, it is a a, a, a feeling of. Um, alienation from by a substantial part of the population that had at one time uh, either legitimately aspired to or enjoyed a greater degree of uh, direct attention from uh, from people in government and and in the political apparatus generally and it, it tends to be people who have been either shortchanged on the basis of what they had they felt legitimate aspirations to expect, or shortchanged on on the basis of what they actually received as a uh, deferentially treated uh, section of the of the uh, of the polity, the public uh, forum, and and uh, it it is not revolutionary in character because rarely do such people want to throw out the institutions altogether or the personnel who who, who direct them. They just want a change of policy, and to the extent that's necessary, change of personnel. And what you normally get is the arising of such a thing, and then when its presence becomes uh, adequately impossible to ignore one or other of the established political parties, then takes up its cause at least to some degree in the hopes of uh, adding its support to what it already has. And I believe this is technically normally called fusionism. Uh, Ronald Reagan, to a degree, did that. He, he took over the Republican Party with a a different message from what he he represented as a kind of tweedledee, tweedledum uh, uh, performance by by those immediately preceding him. And um, and and he 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 undoubtedly added a good many people habitually independents or from the Democratic side. Uh, to the big majorities he won, and um, and uh, it, it is it is the way that historically in the United States and some other countries there are quite sharp changes uh, in in public policy outside um, a, a transition back and forth between between traditional parties of right and left, and and it it. I, I think is becoming quite manifest in a number of the leading democratic countries now, uh, basically because of um, the difficulties we're having finding jobs for everyone in an era when technological advance creates unemployment more than employment, which is doesn't really have a precedent, and uh, and uh, in an era when the um, the 
potentialities of aggressive capitalism create uh, these extraordinary disparities in income uh, greater than we've seen before for certainly in the industrial era and and uh, these are challenges to be assimilated by all these political cultures and uh, you you've you've had them in the United States on such occasions as when William Jennings Bryan took over the Democratic Party calling for bimetallism and um, as I put in the essay you mentioned in Vox Populi, and in the, De- the Democratic Party in the five elections prior to him, from 1876 to 1892, uh, won the popular vote or came on one occasion within a few thousand of winning it, even even though they only won the election twice with Cleveland. Uh, but when Bryan took over with his by metalist faction, their performance deteriorated, and the Republicans won quite easily for some time after that, including three occasions when Bryan himself was the candidate. But it, it, it is a, a time-honored manner of um, uh, making a political alliance with a force of considerable discontent that could otherwise become potentially revolutionary, or at least slightly insurrectionist, and uh, is bringing it back into the political process and giving it uh, where it where it has numbers that justified some sense of being listened to and 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 contributing to government and that does in fact appear to have happened in the last year in in the United States and it certainly happened in France. And I should add, it's hard to imagine a time where uh, the passions of the body politic would be aroused over a silver versus a gold standard or all of the above. Hard to imagine that such a time existed in American history. It is indeed. Uh, it, 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 it was just one of these peculiar fads like prohibition. It, it, it just became a truism that grew and grew. Uh, we had something like that in this country at one time, and to a slight degree in the United States, on the theory that if you just had state-owned hydroelectricity, uh, everyone would prosper. Uh, There there is a weakness, I guess, in all of us, or at least in all uh, nationalities among us, to uh, attach ourselves in large numbers to a simplistic formula for a panacea. And, of course, experience teaches that they don't don't really work, usually, but, um, but that doesn't deprive them of their attraction. In terms of the ideological character of populism today, and I'm thinking here particularly of American populism, although it may extend uh, beyond our borders as well, uh, a question for you. To be a populist in America, do you believe one necessarily need be or ought to be, in a sense, anti-progressive, given that the elite class in and of itself, writ large, has been marinated in progressivism by dint of the schools the elites attend, the neighborhoods in which they live, and the generally monolithic progressive culture that pervades all of the institutions they inhabit? Uh, I I think that in the way you're using the word progressive, the answer to your question is yes, because uh, there is this monochromatic, uniform view um, that is politically correct, and populism is almost certain to be to some substantial extent, reactive against that. I mean, it is, let, let us face it, as I'm sure a great many of your listeners would agree, it is 
an attitude that it is easy to become impatient with. It is so complacent and frequently so erroneous. <clears throat> In general, of course, I would not, any more than I imagine you would, concede that all progress resides with the left. I would say that is demonstrably not the case. Yeah, I would say I would say actually it's regress that is dominated by the left. But that's my editorializing. Yeah, yeah, I, and I don't disagree with it. But I, I we you've got a, a a current usage question slightly at odds with a with a, um, a, a semantic question, I guess. Since you mentioned William Jennings Bryan and the history of populist movements in the U.S., what is it in your view that uh, defines the distinction between President Trump's populism and uh, populist currents that have come before him in American politics? Well, taking Brian as the most prominent example of it, uh, I mean, his ideas simply weren't practical. He, he had some interesting elements of, a, of, as you would say, a progressive program. He was, um, uh, I mean, I'm no great enthusiast about income taxes, but he, he was a little ahead of his time in that area. He was somewhat ahead of his time in women's rights, too, including the right to vote. Um, but in, but the idea was nonsense. The idea that if you, if you just um, uh, brought silver as the second precious metal into back the currency, everyone would get richer. It was just foolishness. It was just going to create inflation. That's all. If, as you increase the money supply out of any proportion to productivity increases. And um, now, in, in fairness, the general subject of economics had not been so thoroughly studied at that time. But uh, in, in, in direct reference to the present Trump phenomenon, uh, he composed a rather artistic combination of traditional conservative views, but, but sensible conservative views, that he could exploit a, a, a nostalgia for and an aspiration for, and added to them a couple of populist flourishes that consisted of uh, a, a particular emphasis on a couple of points that were not in themselves radical or unheard of or, or frightening, but had, uh, but from him received greater emphasis, particularly questions of immigration and trade, and to some extent the imposition of law enforcement. And, and these were all ideas that were out there, but he hammered them very hard. He didn't just take out of thin air a harebrained theory that had never been tried, like that by mentalism. He just said, you know, look here, we've, we've allowed 11 or 12 million people to come into our country, most of them unskilled workers, uh, not easily assimilable into our society, including a good many undesirables that other countries in this hemisphere wish to be rid of themselves. And, and we haven't even taken their names as they've entered. They've just come in completely unannounced and unrecorded and, and are a terrible weight to our social safety net and our education system and so on. And this won't do. Countries must have borders. Now, it is so obvious, it is hard to imagine that anyone needed to be told that. And, and I think historians of the United States of the future will be flabbergasted that the political class sat on their hands, both parties, uh, the presidents and the congresses, <clears throat> for 20 years or more and, and allowed these millions of people to come in. 
Uh, it was a shocking lapse in, in political responsibility. And he finally made the political establishment pay for it. And you write in your essay of President Trump's election that it was only the third time in 100 years that, quote, the political center moved, unquote. What do you mean by this? Um, the, the others that I was referring to were 1932 with Franklin D. Roosevelt and 1980 with Ronald Reagan. And I believe those three elections are, are, are the only ones where there really was a clear demarcation between the outgoing administration and the incoming one, um, even if it only became altogether clear after the new one was installed. Uh, in, um, let's say, the ideological orientation of of the administration, um, Roosevelt obviously faced with a terrible economic crisis, had a far more government interventionist view of how to get out of that crisis than Herbert Hoover did. And um, I mean, I think they were both in approximately the same. Uh, socioeconomic group themselves. I mean, Roosevelt had a more patrician heritage, but they were both high-income, well-educated men. And uh, so it, it wasn't it wasn't that they were at war between themselves and some Marxist classway. They just had a disagreement about how to deal with an unprecedented, unprecedented economic emergency. In the case of Reagan, he, there was a strong foreign policy element to it as well, as he believed that... Uh, the Kennedy-Johnson administrations, and to some degree the Nixon-Ford administrations, had been too accommodating of the Soviet Union. And uh, But domestically, he was an advocate of uh, reduced tax and less intervention and smaller government. And to some degree, he was a bit of a confidence trickster of a very benign and admirable kind. He, he didn't really shrink the government very much. He, even when he was in office five or six years, he was still running against Washington, but he, I mean the city of Washington and the people in it, and and the have uh, been the public sector people in it, and and yet he'd been the president for years, uh, and he, he was very skillful at doing it, but um, but he didn't in fact seriously undertake a reduction of the role of government. He just he just changed essentially cut taxes and increased the the military capacities and ability to be more assertive politically of the United States very successfully. In the case of um, President Trump, I, I, again, I think it's, a, it's not very difficult to see the, the, the change in policy all along the line that he's conducted from the Obama administration, whether it's uh, environmental questions, uh, treatment of most foreign policy areas, uh, tax policy various areas of regulation. It, it, it is a sharp change in, in traditional terms. It's a change to the right, but not the radical right, just the same sort of right that Reagan talked about and to some degree acted upon. Yeah, and that, that Trump agenda, which loosely we can define as, and this is what the National Security Strategy uh, released at the end of last year termed it, a principled realism abroad and at home, an emphasis on sovereignty, the rule of law, and economic nationalism uh, on the domestic side. In your view, does that agenda have staying power? In other words, is 
Trump's populist agenda sort of a blip in history that has emerged due to a forceful and charismatic personality? Or is there a broader political movement that has real legs? Uh, I, of course, it could go either way, and a lot depends on leadership and, and more specifically on how it how it plays out over the next couple of years. But uh, I believe uh, I believe that it does have legs, and and I think it is on balance better policy. Uh, let us face facts: the the alternative, the policy that that he has run against and substantially changed, has been a policy of essentially um, taking uh, taking money from people who've earned it and giving it to people who haven't um, with what a very large number consider to be an inadequate criterion of, of, of merit, uh, but uh, in, a, in a way that coincidentally happens to lead towards the offense of fewer voters than it pleases. I mean, that's essentially what we're dealing with here. I mean, if President Roosevelt had founded the modern um, social safety network of the United States had ever seen what it degenerated into, he would have been outraged. He he, he said, I'm not paying people. I uh, he, he, he said that he wouldn't pay people to be idle. I mean, he would if they simply couldn't work or we couldn't find anything for them. But in general, he put people to work and conservation projects and what would today be called infrastructure projects. And they were extremely successful at endowing the country with a great, a great uh, mileage of highways and many national parks and great projects like the Lincoln Tunnel and the Triborough Bridge and the TVA and so on. And it was, it was a, a temporary alternate form of work. And I think it's been a mistake by American historians to fail to to reduce that number of people in his workfare programs from their calculation of the unemployed, uh, in 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 as you know, in more recent times, we we've had a shrinkage of the workforce and huge numbers of people simply paid to be idle, and to some degree, it's a necessity because it is difficult to find work for everyone at a time when. Uh, most areas of productivity can be accomplished with far fewer people than in the 1930s. But um, uh, but uh, but I, I think what what Trump is trying to do is go back to economic growth and fair trading, so the U.S. doesn't just import unemployment in straight deals uh, and 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 soak up the unemployed and underemployed that way and make a more contented and purposeful workforce and. Uh, reduce the trade account deficit and that sort of thing. And, and uh, so I, I think that is fundamentally sound policy that that will be at least partially successful and therefore partially durable. I, I, I think it would be a, a terrible mistake and a very sad thing if his policy, his economic policy, failed. Now, there's no sign of that at this point, but you know we're only a year into it now. Yeah, and you wrote an article uh, towards the end of, of last year for National Review uh, where you reflected a bit on the president's first year, and, and you see a great divergence at its highest level between style and substance, reflected well in kind of the apoplexy and criticism of the resistance on the one hand, and then the actual policies that were promulgated and executed during the year on the other, reflect for us a little bit on the president's first year in office as it relates to populism. 
Well, look, I think he's had the most successful first year since uh, since Eisenhower, uh, who who ended the Korean War in his first year, and um, uh, and and this is disguised by these endless controversies, some of which cre- created by his deliberately goading his opponents, um, because the tumult seems to amuse him personally, and um, and. And it, it, he 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 is a showman, and he believes up to a point that uh, that politics is entertainment, and he does make it entertaining. I think even most of his opponents would agree with that. Um, but but the um, uh, but the fact is, it's been a year of considerable achievement. He's drastically reduced the number of illegal entrants into the country. Uh, he's got a much higher level of cooperation from the Chinese in dealing with North Korea. Uh, they have with allies, but the U.S. playing a very important role in it effectively smashed ISIS as we knew it. I'm not saying there are no people professing to be ISIS sympathizers around, but they're not. They don't occupy any defined territory in, in Syria or Iraq as they did, and. Um, uh, of course, the economic numbers have been extraordinarily good, and he's got some of the NATO countries, including Canada, I'm happy to say, raising their defense budgets in accordance with their commitments instead of just complacently sitting with an American military guarantee and reducing the whole alliance to a talking shop. Uh, and I, I, all of these things, I think, have worked out well. And, and, um, and I personally think that he was right not to proceed with the Paris Climate Agreement, which essentially was uh, based on on very questionable scientific analysis, producing a conclusion that would cause the advanced economies in a very apologetic manner to enrich less developed countries who are, in fact, uh, frequently the greatest offenders in environmental matters. And it was just a at least in large measure, a transfer of money from rich to poor countries in the manner of the long-preferred, let's say, Obama-level model of transferring internal resources from uh, the middle class to to people of lower incomes. Obama's took pretty good care, as the Clintons did, of very wealthy people who tended to take good care of them, too, personally and otherwise. But the um, but the, the, I, I, you know, the fact is that I, I don't I, I'm, I have no standing to to mind read. But it appears that the Clinton camp had terrible problems accepting the fact that they'd lost the election, and as a result of that, given their preeminence in the media, largely because Trump identified the national media as one of the problems, part of the swamp and one of the afflictions of the, of the country um, and its political system. The Democrats have had no difficulty at all getting solidarity with most of the national media uh, attacking Trump at every conceivable opportunity. So we've had this procession of utterly absurd, preposterous um, attempts to undermine his presidency that he had colluded in a treasonable manner with the Russians. Of course, it's nonsense. There's not a shred of evidence of it. He wouldn't dream of such a thing. Or that um, he's he's completely mentally incapacitated. He's so unbalanced and therefore should be removed 
under the 25th Amendment. Again, this is nonsense. It's a, that that would have applied at the end of President Wilson's time after the strokes he had, or something like that. Not 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 a situation like this. Uh, the Logan Act, which has never been successfully applied in 219 years, that he improperly conducted foreign policy before he was president. This is nonsense. Uh, obstruction of justice from firing Comey, which he would have no difficulty establishing that Comey richly deserved to be fired after some things he did. And I don't think even Democrats would dispute that now. Um, all of this was just nonsense. But in this atmosphere of a sort of denial that Trump had won, and therefore a, a question about the legitimacy of him being in the White House at all, there's been this recurrence of attempts to uh, demonstrate that he is either morally or um, psychologically uh, unqualified to be president. And so we've had this red herring of a confected threat to his legitimacy hanging over him. And that has been the chief reason why the atmosphere has been so contumelious. But um, but in fact, his, his his accomplishments as president have been very substantial and precisely along the lines he promised. Uh, I mean, obviously, some of the things he said in this campaign, as as is the case with most candidates, successful and otherwise, were exaggerations on what he actually did in office. But in general, he has done what he said he would do. And that in itself is a refreshing change. The ultimate goal of the litany of charges against the president, uh, as we all know, but which is left unsaid frequently, is to, as you said, undermine his legitimacy and ultimately, from the Democratic perspective, uh, to try to remove him from office, to create, uh, kind of build the case, real or imagined, and then be able to apply high crimes and misdemeanors and seek to impeach him. Uh, all of the signs look fairly ominous for what will happen, at the very least in the House, in the midterm elections for the Republican Party. Uh, what do you anticipate happening if Republicans do, in fact, lose the House? Well, I, I, I agree. I think they're trying to either remove him, first of all, uh, sort of taint him and, and plant this, uh, this generalized view that there's something illegitimate about him, therefore he shouldn't receive the, uh, the respect normally offered to him. Uh, secondly, if they can't push him out altogether... Uh, to distract him so much uh, that, that that he can't perform properly, so they can then accuse him of being a do-nothing president and a mere controversialist, and 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 have him as a sort of um, uh, immobilized president sitting in the White House awaiting the end of his term. Um, on your specific question, uh, if if the Democrats got control of the House of Representatives, uh, certainly there would be a much greater danger that they would try and put an impeachment bill through. I I, I doubt that. Um, I mean, on anything we can see at this point, there would be no really serious reason to do it other than their own partisanship. And uh, there are some sane people in that party and in, in their. House of Representatives delegation, I, I I think Trump would have to do something uh, that the media could successfully represent as really seriously outrageous before they could get a positive vote. I don't think they, uh, I mean, un unless Trump actually committed a crime, which he's not going to do, has not done and will not do, but unless he, he, he did that, they, I don't, I, they would have less chance of actually getting a vote to remove him in the Senate, a two-thirds vote. 
than 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 the Republicans had when they tried it with Clinton. Uh, so I, I I think the the price we paid essentially for the for the terrible overreaction to Watergate, uh, accompanied by the fact that Mr. Nixon didn't handle the investigation properly. I, I don't think that there is any evidence even now that Nixon himself committed illegalities in Watergate, but some people in his entourage did. But the price we paid for that is the routinization of the criminalization of policy differences. I don't agree with this person, so uh, we, you know, we're... we're uh, imaginative and uh, adaptive Americans. Let's see if we can, if we can avoid uh, the, this policy option we don't like, and as a bonus, get rid of this president we don't like because he's in the other party, and, and uh, by accusing him of crimes. And it's as if it was just a confidence vote in a parliamentary system like, like Britain or Canada. And, and that is not what the authors of the Constitution intended. Mr. Nixon was a patriotic man who, in fact, was convinced himself that he did not commit crimes, that if he was judged fairly, would be judged not, not to have committed crimes. But as a patriot, since impeachment had not been mentioned in a presidential context for over a century uh, for a president, uh, the, he just didn't want to put the country to such a, a, a demeaning process. And Bill Clinton had no such reservations, but he did he did achieve something by showing that it wasn't a process that could, would necessarily be very successful. Uh, they had not even got that far with Reagan on the Iran-Contra nonsense. But uh, what should happen at some point soon is both parties and the, the powers that be politically in the country generally – should realize that impeachment of a president is something that should be regarded as an absolutely extreme measure, uh, as it was intended to be, in the case uh, of utterly, profoundly unconstitutional conduct. It was really designed to prevent a domestic George III coming in. Not that he was that bad a king either, but he, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't that good either. And he was mad half the time, but he was not a madman. But, uh, I mean, you know, a mad despot, an autocrat, uh, as he was accused of being. But that, again, that's beside the point. But I, I, if the United States, and Alan Dershowitz speaks very well about this, and he's a liberal Democrat who supported Clinton, if, if, if the U.S. is going to criminalize uh, in an accelerated and unjust way or purport to criminalize the conduct of people who were just doing what they said they would do when they ran for election um, and and then psychiatrize them too and claim that they're mentally unbalanced and so forth, uh, you're going to get chaos in that country. The whole system will break down. What should happen as a result of all this talk is have a, a, a all-party, nonpartisan resolution and agreement, not legislation, but just a state of mind that is agreed upon, that discussion of impeachment or removal from office of a president should only be entertained in the event of high crimes and misdemeanors for which there's real evidence, and, and, and not in a, in a routine and frivolous and, and dangerously irresponsible way, which is what we've got now. I don't think the Democrats will win the House. I think what will happen is that uh, the president will carefully assemble his uh, a, a, a health care reform that the Republican Party is pretty much agreed upon and, and an immigration reform that it's pretty much agreed upon.
put those out very firmly to the voters, stand on his high economic growth and, and continuing excellent economic numbers, uh, and and order the release by the Justice Department relatively close to the midterm elections of everything to do with, with the collusion investigation to reveal in, in its ghastly infirmity, the absolute vacuity of that argument, the falsity, the malice, and the defamatory destructiveness of the entire argument that he or anyone closely associated with him ever colluded with a foreign power to rig an American election. Uh, just administer a bone-crushing defeat to the Democrats and, and, their, uh, and their echo chamber in the national media. Uh, and and do it right just coming into the midterm election campaign. And I think he will gain seats in both the House and the Senate. The name of the book is Vox Populi, and we've been speaking with the author of one of its exceptional essays, Lord Conrad Black. Lord Black, thanks so much for joining us today. And thank you so much, Ben. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.